So let's, uh, let's pray, and then we'll begin this morning's message entitled, The Cleansing of the Sanctuary. So let's pray. Sweet Jesus, I thank you that you long to bless us today more than we have the courage to ask. Uh, but I do pray, as Moses prayed, that you would show us your glory this morning, uh, that you would speak to us, that you would minister to us, and that you would help us to see an important and, I believe, under-addressed uh, and overlooked aspect of what you're seeking to do in the cleansing of the sanctuary. Speak to us, O oh God, I pray, and I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I will be addressing the cleansing of the sanctuary, but maybe from a different angle than you uh, would expect or that is generally addressed. And it's not to negate that other aspect of it. I just want to kind of address an under-addressed aspect of it. And ironically, I don't know if you're aware of this, I didn't plan this, but clearly God must have. All three messages we're talking about this weekend are applying to uh, the topic of the investigative judgment in some form or fashion, or the Day of Atonement, Daniel 8 through 10, um, as far as some of those different aspects of what we'll see. Uh, it's largely alluded to in Daniel 8, but anyway, we're addressing that throughout the whole course this weekend. But if you weren't aware of this, Yom Kippur was actually this week. Uh, I did not plan that, but it totally happened, so uh, I guess this is a, a perfect time to be discussing this particular topic. So, uh, there are primarily three types of sanctuaries or temples referred to in Scripture. Uh, the first is the one that was built on earth. We see that in Exodus chapter 25, let them build me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And chapter 25 kind of fleshes out how it was built and what that process looked like. Um, and we also see it in 2 Chronicles 3, whenever Solomon built uh, you know, the more permanent structure. And then we see it in Ezra and Nehemiah's day when a temple's rebuilt then as well. Now, the most important location of this sanctuary was the most holy place where God's presence was found above the Ark of the Covenant. So the Ark served basically as God's throne on earth. So his law and his presence were found in the most holy place or the most important location of the sanctuary. Now, we actually see this again in the heavenly sanctuary. This is alluded to in Revelation chapter 11. Uh, John the Revelator is given a vision of the, the throne room in heaven, and he sees the Ark of the Covenant there. And you know the, the law is inside of this Ark, so God's presence and God's law are also in the most focal point in the heavenly sanctuary. This is also alluded to in Hebrews 8 through 10. We'll look at those texts here in just a moment. So, the throne is where one governs and where they administer their laws. So God's presence and law are found in the most important location of the heavenly temple, just like what we saw on earth. Now, this important connection between these two temples, the earthly temple and the heavenly temple, uh, is pointed out in Exodus 25 and Hebrews chapters 8, 9, and 10. So we'll look at some of these texts now. Exodus chapter 25, beginning of verse 9. According to all that I show you, God says, that is, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. And skipping down to verse 40. And see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. So the sanctuary that Moses was to build on earth was patterned after something else, is what's being alluded to here. A pattern of what? Hebrews chapter 8 begins to tell us what that looks like. Uh, Hebrews 8, beginning in verse 1. Now, this is the main point of the things that we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. Okay, so this was a pattern of something that was designed in heaven, which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it was necessary that this one also have something to offer. Picking up in verse 4. 
For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and the shadow of heavenly things. So the author of Hebrews is super clear that the sanctuary on earth was a copy or shadow of heavenly realities. Okay? As Moses was divinely instructed when he was to make the tabernacle, for he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. He's quoting Exodus chapter 25 there. So the Bible and the author of Hebrews are making this connection for us, that the earthly sanctuary is built after the true sanctuary in heaven. So this isn't an Adventist idea. This is a fully biblical one, right, which is an important note. It's not something that we cooked up to just kind of get over the great disappointment of 1844. Now, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11. But Christ came as the high priest of the good things to come, which the, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. Same language of chapter 8. That is, not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Okay, so again, using this same language, and he's borrowing language from Leviticus 16 that we'll look at in a moment. Now, we talked about this last night, the efficacy of Christ's sacrifice for all of humanity, right? Whether we understand or appreciate it, we addressed that last night. But skipping down to verse 23 of Hebrews chapter 9, Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. It's a consistent theme throughout Hebrews, the supremacy of Jesus, better, 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 better. So, for Christ has not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So, Jesus represents that perfect high priest on our behalf, and uh, what we see in the earthly tabernacle is kind of getting a peephole view of what's really happening in heaven on our behalf. Go to chapter 10 now, Hebrews Beginning of verse 1, For the law having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. The author is using very interesting language here that kind of implies the laboriousness of these earthly sac- of these sacrifices and services, that it didn't really seal the deal, right? It was a picture of what was to come, but it wasn't the thing. And so continually, year by year, for then would they not have ceased to be offered? If these things actually got the job done, you wouldn't have to do it year, 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 year like that. Okay? So, um, for the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there's a remember of sins every year, reminder of sins every year. Verse 4, for it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Okay, they couldn't do the job, but they were pointing to what could. And then in verse 10 of Hebrews 10, it says, By that will we've been sanctified through the offering of Jesus Christ once for all. Okay, Jesus is the true solution. So seeing the connection between these two temples helps us to realize that everything that happened on earth shows us what Jesus is doing in heaven as our heavenly high priest. And the most important service that occurred in the earthly temple was the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which again happened earlier this week. So just a basic overview of Leviticus 16. This is not a full study on this because that's not really where I want to go today. But if you do have interest in that, talk to us. Uh, I'm sure there's someone here who'd be happy to give you a Bible study on the topic of the investigative judgment or the Day of Atonement and so forth. This is just kind of an overview. So there were two primary types of services that took place in the sanctuary uh, in the Hebrew economy. 
There were the daily services where people found atonement on a daily basis. You'd committed a transgression. You realized it. You took an animal. You walked. You took the walk of shame to the sanctuary. You confessed over the animal the sin that you had committed. You took the life of the animal. This was teaching you that sin costs something, that sin is painful. It's grotesque. It leads to death and loss and violation. So that process was being very clear to the transgressor. Right? They didn't just farm it off to somebody else. I'll buy the meat, but you do something with it. Like You had to kill the animal yourself. And so that happened on the daily services. And basically, your sin was transferred into the sanctuary. You confessed over the animal. Uh, the priest caught the blood in the bowl from what you had slain. They would carry it into the tabernacle. They put it on the horns of the altar, and they'd sprinkle it on the veil in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And when they sprinkled this blood on the veil, atonement was found. Now when God looked through the veil from the most holy place, through the holy place, through the courtyard, into the gate of the courtyard, when he saw the transgressor, he no longer saw a transgressor, he saw someone through the lens of blood. Right? This is what God saw after the sacrifice had been made, and atonement was brought for the individual. So your sin, 359 days out of the year in the daily services, was transferred into the sanctuary. Right? It's no longer being held against you, but there was some form of record of it in the sanctuary. And God, on the Day of Atonement, in the yearly service, cleansed the sanctuary of all record of sin, which is such a beautiful teaching because the implication here is that God is not looking to remember what you've done. That when you've sinned, when you've transgressed, when you confess your sin, God is in the business. We talked about this last night. In 1 John 1, 9, in the original language, it reads differently than it does in English. Instead of saying that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, though it actually reads in the original language is, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to separate us from our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God not only provides forgiveness, he also provides separation from our sins. And we see that in the yearly service, which is a beautiful teaching. And it was a time of celebration. It was very solemn when the, when the services were happening, when the priest was in and administering on the Day of Atonement. But at the conclusion of that service, it was a time of celebration because God has fully and completely kept his promise to remove all record of our sins. Which is ironic to me because many people today are horrified of this idea of the investigative judgment. They think that it's like totally anti-gospel, it's not Christ-centered, it's all about like judgment and scary stuff. But literally what the Israelites did after this was throw a massive celebration because God had been fully faithful to his people. Are you understanding? So this is a time, it's supposed to be a joyous occasion once that service has completed. So Leviticus 16 tells us that the yearly services included the priest cleansing the sanctuary of any record of the confessed sins of the people that had been piling up over the course of the year. And a judgment is taking place at this time. And every Israelite knew that they needed to confess their sins and bring them to God before this day, uh, because if they didn't do this, they would incur irreparable loss, right? It couldn't be fixed. But the point is God made full provision for them to be cleansed, but he left the choice and the freedom with them to do it or not. He made full provision, but whether you opt into this and, and choose to participate in this is entirely your decision. And so you can either take advantage of his provision or reject it and treat it as of little importance. Now, if there were sins that they didn't know that they had committed, we talked about this last night, there was provision for that too, the morning and the evening sacrifices. And this even happened on the Day of Atonement, which is beautiful because this implies, again, that God is working for us, that God is looking for reasons to forgive, not for reasons to exclude. 
right? And this is such beautiful news because every morning when an Israelite looked out their tent door and they looked towards the sanctuary, and when they saw smoke wafting off of the altar, the immediate thought in their mind is, God's working for me. God's not against me. God is working for me, even in the things that I don't know that I've done. And he's given me a means of atonement for the things that I do know that I've done. There's provision in every aspect of this, okay? And so he desperately wants to remove all barriers that would keep us from being reunited with him. In fact, in Exodus 25 and verse 8, the whole reason for the sanctuary service, God says, was, let them build me a sanctuary. Why? So that I can dwell among them. He's trying to get rid of the separation. That's what God is seeking, and that's why the services were given to bring reconciliation and healing, to remove the means of separation between us and God. Which then brings us to this idea of Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14. We as Adventists have traditionally applied this verse to the idea of Leviticus 16 in the Day of Atonement, and for good reason. Because any time a Hebrew would hear of a sanctuary being cleansed, their immediate thought was judgment. That judgment is happening right now, and two, that God is advocating and fighting for his people and removing all record of our transgressions. So we have this understanding that the connection between the heavenly sanctuary and the earthly sanctuary gives us a context that makes Daniel 8.14 make sense. We have have a worldview to look through in a context that makes this verse actually make sense, that the heavenly sanctuary is the true sanctuary. What happened on earth was a type of that to teach us lessons about what's happening there because, you know, you can't go there right now. So God gave us an example here to better understand that whole process. And through these means, Leviticus 16 teaches us what the most important thing is that God is seeking to do on our behalf on the Day of Atonement. So, um... The big picture of the Day of Atonement was God cleansing and removing all record of sin from the sanctuary and to cleanse the camp as a whole. And again, this is a means of celebration because God had removed completely all of the means of separation and that God had kept his promise to separate them from their sins. But we also saw that in both of these temples, the earthly temple and the heavenly temple, the most important place of that temple was where God's presence and law could be found. Both of these points, God's intention to remove all record of sin and his presence and law being in the most important place are super important as we look at the third temple that's alluded to in scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells within you? There are three temples alluded to in Scripture, the heavenly temple, the earthly temple, and the human temple. And I don't mean this in a pantheistic sense. I'm not John Harvey Kellogg. Don't freak out. Okay. So in the earthly temple and heavenly temple, the most holy place was where God would abide with his law, right? And in the human temple, we see the same thing. Where's the most holy place in the human temple? It's the heart and the mind, right? The very, the very essence of who you are. Look at the language that's used about this. John chapter 14, beginning of verse 15. If you love me, the marginal reference says, you will keep my commandments. So it's not a statement in the imperative in the original language. If you, love, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And here's how. I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. And who is that helper? The Spirit of truth. I want to come back to that in a moment. Whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. Why? For he dwells with you and will be in you. God desires to be in the most holy place of your life. 
God wants to abide in your heart and in your mind, to help you, to guide you, to comfort you, and even to speak truth to you. He's called the spirit of truth for a reason, because we're so prone to believe lies, to have sympathy for lies, and he's there to bring balance to the equation of our thought life, to speak truth into our hearts and minds that are so prone to believe lies and hurtful and damaging things. Are you understanding? I think this is super, super important for us. Same premise here in Jeremiah chapter 31. But this is the covenant, speaking of new covenant language, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law where? In their minds, and I'm going to write it where? On their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So the new covenant experience is the work of God in writing his law in our hearts and in our minds. And then he continues in verse 34. And no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. We see those two aspects of forgiveness we talked about last night. Pardon and separation from sin. I'm separating that from your experience. I'm not going to remember that anymore. It's going to be removed, he says. So the promises and principles of what takes place in both the earthly and heavenly temple are also found in the human temple. In the earthly temple, we saw that the most holy place was where God would abide with his law. In the human temple, the most important place where God dwells is the most holy place of our heart and our mind. And so the new covenant experience is the work of God in writing his law in that very same place. And through the Holy Spirit, he's promised to abide in us as we abide in him. And he also promises again to remember our sins no more. We'll come back to that point later. But this is an important transitionary statement. God isn't just concerned with what he puts in our hearts and minds. He's also desperately longing to cleanse the sanctuary of our heart and minds of all the record of sins that have been committed against us and that we've committed against ourselves and others. And this is so important. It's not just that God wants to put his law in our hearts and our minds. There are so many damaging things in our hearts and our minds. And when we focus on the cleansing of the sanctuary largely, our discussions focus upon what's happening in heaven. That the confessed sins that we put up there in the same process. And that's true. And we're not denying that. But it doesn't stop there. God is wanting to cleanse your heart and your mind of hurtful, damaging thought patterns. Of these sins that we cannot let ourselves get over that we've committed. Even though God doesn't remember them anymore, we can't stop remembering them. We can't stop beating ourselves up. We can't stop medicating ourselves because of those guilty thoughts. Are you understanding? God's desire to cleanse the sanctuary is bigger than what we have focused on, unfortunately. And again, we focus on a, on a great deal of good things, but don't stop there. There's still more that God longs to do for us. So again, the third temple is 1 Corinthians 3, John 14, and Jeremiah 31. So let's flesh this out of what God's truly seeking to do on the Day of Atonement. When Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 5, it literally says the whole head is sick. Like th this is our state of mind as fallen, broken human beings who violate and have been violated. Our whole head is sick and the whole heart faints. And God longs to do something about that. God wants to intervene to heal us and to help us. This is part of the gospel solution. We're also told in Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 17 that we're so prone to take refuge in lies that we find comfort in the midst of our damaging negative thought patterns and it's very difficult for us to let go of those because we found refuge in them. Those self-protective tendencies and so forth that we have can come from these things that happen to us. And so many of us are believing things about ourselves that are incredibly damaging, and we're also believing things about God that are damaging. And a deep cleansing of the thought life is needed to rid us of these crippling belief systems. 
And God is earnestly longing to cleanse that most holy place of our soul temples to deliver us from the tyranny of these lies. God wants to go so much deeper. It's not just that God wants to get rid of your bad behavior. God's wanting to go even deeper than that. He doesn't want the bad behavior. I'm not denying that. But a big reason behind this is the obvious fact, apart from the fact that God doesn't want you to live in distress, is that he understands the connection with what we believe and what leads us to act out and do the things that we do. We're so inclined to be focused on behavior, but God understands that our behaviors are birthed out of our beliefs. So for God to just take away your addiction and not address the wounds of your heart that led you to go to that addiction to numb that pain in the first place doesn't solve the problem. And so we think when God's cleansing the sanctuary, God, get this bad habit out of my life. And God is saying, I want to go deeper than that. There's reasons why you had these bad habits in your life. There's stuff that you're believing. You're taking refuge in lies. The whole head is sick. And I want to heal the heart and the mind. I want to cleanse the sanctuary. This is what God is seeking to do for us. But will we let him? He understands again that our behaviors are birthed out of our beliefs. So cleansing the soul temple of faulty beliefs will lead to a removal of the need for bad behaviors and self-sabotage. You understanding? This is so, so important. And we're told that God wants to do this. In Psalm 147 verse 3, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He's in the business. He's the best medical missionary you've ever seen, guys. By the way, medical missionaries should not just be focusing on physical health. They should also be focusing on mental health. You know that, right? Okay, just saying. So we're promised that God is in the business of healing our broken hearts and binding up our wounds. In fact, whenever Jesus in Luke chapter 4 is asked to do a scripture reading in the church service, they hand him the scroll of Isaiah. We don't really think in biblical terms and in their culture, but the scroll of Isaiah was basically two rolling pins and a 60-foot parchment. And there were no chapters and there were no verses. And it says that Jesus found in the scroll of Isaiah where it says, and then it's quoting Isaiah chapter 61, that's going to take a while, potentially, right? There's no landmarks to go through, but Jesus finds it in that, in that scroll, and he says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And I think this is so important because this is what Jesus came here for. He didn't just come here to correct your bad theological understanding of what the state of the dead actually means or that you're going to church on a day that isn't the ideal day. Now, there is a place for doing this form of ministry. God wants people to embrace and walk in full Bible truth. Yes, but if all we're focusing on is correcting people's bad theology, but our presentations and our evangelistic series and our Bible studies and so forth, if those Bible studies and series are doing nothing about this, we're not actually doing what Jesus did. Are you understanding? When people come to our meetings, they should find healing for their broken hearts, not just healing for their bad theology. And this is what we were called to do. And going to verse uh, 2 and 3 of Isaiah 61, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Do you know how many people who are fully convinced that they can't be accepted by God because they've gone too far, they've done too much, they're too broken, they're too dirty? Many people. But part of Jesus' role was to let them know to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord in the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, 
to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. And then it says that when Jesus fully heals his people, he's glorified. And the word sozo, we'll get to that here in a moment, so I'll, I'll skip that actually, I'll wait for a moment here. But Jesus declares that this is what he came here for. This was his mission. And I do not believe that that mission and goal ended when he died and rose again. That he only focused on healing the brokenhearted, you know, during this time span when he was doing ministry on earth for three and a half years. I don't believe that. I believe he's still in the business of healing the brokenhearted, of setting people free who are in bondage, of comforting people who mourn, right? Of giving them a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. He still longs to do this, and this is part of his cleansing work that he's doing right now during the time of the judgment. A big component of the work that Jesus is doing right now as our high priest is applying the healing that he achieved as our suffering Messiah to our lives through the ministry of his Holy Spirit, who is called the Comforter. And the author of Hebrews gets this point. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning of verse 17. Therefore, in all things, Jesus had to be made like his brethren. It had to happen this way. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation, covering for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's able to aid those who were tempted. So Jesus had to suffer with heartbreak and loneliness and betrayal and difficulties, wrestling with the silence of God. He had to go through all of these things and rejection for you so that he could be a sympathetic high priest and to help you when you're tempted. And he's doing that right now as we speak because of his life that was filled with suffering, just like what you and I suffer. It was to enable him to be that faithful high priest who can aid us in the face of our own personal sufferings and temptation. And the author of Hebrews goes a step further in chapter 4. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, this suffering Messiah, let us hold fast our confession. Now, why does he have to say that? Because Jesus understands that when we go through difficulties in life, we're tempted to let go of our confession. We're tempted to quit, to stop praying, because what's the point? Bad things happen to me. And there's this quote in Desire of Ages where Ellen White says that they were looking for a Messiah that had not been promised. And many of us are in that same category. We think, like Martha and Mary thought, that if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That if Jesus was with me, bad things wouldn't have happened. But that's not the promise that Jesus made. In fact, in John chapter 16 and verse 33, he said, in this world, you're gonna have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Why? Because I've overcome the world. Beloved, if Jesus has overcome the world, that means he's overcome whatever you're dealing with today. Whatever is heavy and hard and difficult that's holding you back, he's already overcome that. And when they're looking for a Messiah that had not been promised, again, we think that if Jesus is here, bad things aren't gonna happen. That's not the promise we were given. The promise we were given was when bad things happen, Jesus is here. He's here to comfort us, to help us, and to minister to us. So when difficulties and challenges come against you, this is not the time to let go of Jesus. It's not. It's the time to hold fast our confession. And he tells us why. Because we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but who was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then he says, So let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. 
Literally, when these difficulties and challenges and heartbreak comes to us, that's not the time to let go of Jesus. It's literally the time to sprint into his comforting arms and to let him do for you what he's earned the right to do by suffering before you suffered. This is so important for us. So he didn't just die for us, he suffered for us for us to offer us healing and cleansing from the wounds of our past, whether they be self-inflicted or the wounds that were imposed upon us by those around us. He's in the business of healing and cleansing. But the way we get access to that is by first holding fast our confession and coming boldly to his throne of grace. And I love this idea too that his throne is where his perfect law is found that will judge the world. But it's also a place where the mercy seat is found. And that is our assurance of his grace and forgiveness when we come to him for help. Because when we mess up, those thoughts come to us and say, you can't go. He doesn't want to hear from you. You're too bad. You're too dirty. You've gone too far. You've made too many mistakes. God could never forgive you for that. And we're being told here, no, 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 that's not how this works. And so many of us have been robbed of hope because of the violations and disappointments that we face in this life. But I love that Paul addresses this in the book of Romans. In Romans 15 and verse 13, it says, And now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice it's not a God who happens to kind of sometimes possess a sufficient amount of hope for your particular time of need. It calls him the God of hope. And he uses the God of multiple times in Romans. The God of joy, the God of peace, the God of love, the God of hope, the God of all comfort in 2 Corinthians. And I love this because he's literally willing to be the God of whatever you need him to be. He's in the business of doing that, guys. That's what he wants to do for you. And so in this situation, he's not just someone who happens to possess a small measure of hope. He's the very source of hope, and he's willing to flood your life with it. But when we get hurt and damaged and, 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 and abused in difficult, damaging circumstances, it's easy for us to lose hope. But we're told, no, 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 don't let go. There's a God of hope available to you who can fill you with all joy and peace in believing and that you can abound in hope by the power of his Holy Spirit. And Romans 5, 5 says that hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. That he's willing to flood our lives with his love and his peace. So I love that Paul addresses this head on. God isn't, again, just this God who possesses a certain measure of hope. He's the God of hope, the very source of the hope and the spring from which it comes forth that can more than meet your need. So here's the point, guys. If we continue to dwell on what we've done or who we've been in our past, we're really not allowing God to do what he intends to do on the Day of Atonement. When we keep clinging to who we've been and what we've done, when we've brought those sins to Jesus, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to separate us from our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He cast them as far as the east is from the west. So why are you holding on to them? Why are you finding sympathy with the accuser of the brethren who's telling you you're not good enough and God would never forgive you because you did this and your repentance wasn't even genuine and you know it? All of those thoughts, those don't come from him. And when we cherish these thoughts, we are literally standing against the cleansing of the sanctuary. We're fighting him. We're allowing these things to remain in the most holy place that God intends to cleanse and remove. And I don't believe that's the abundant life that he wants for us. Remember in Jeremiah 31 verse 34, part of the new covenant experience is that he will remember our sins and our lawless deeds no more. He doesn't remember them anymore. He says, yeah, but God, but I did this thing 10 years ago. I don't know what you're talking about. 
I don't know what you're talking about. Why are you even bringing that up? I'm trying, I have already gotten rid of that in the books of heaven, but I'm trying to cleanse it from your temple. I'm trying to cleanse it from your heart and from your mind to give you the freedom that I long to give you. And so there's this word that's used in the New Testament, sozo, that doesn't just imply physical healing, it's spiritual healing, it's salvation, it's deliverance, right? It's, it's a, a means of preservation, of rescue, of saving, and of healing. God never intended for there to be a separation from healing and salvation. But some of us wrestle with this, right? Like, we were forgiven for a sin, but we won't let God heal us from the wounds that came from that sin. The self-hatred, the self-sabotage, the addictive tendencies, and all of this. God wants to give you complete and total healing. He doesn't just want to say, okay, that didn't happen, right? That's covered by the blood of Jesus. He wants you to be able to live your life as if that didn't happen. Are you understanding? Many of us are in bondage right now, and this is not what God is intending. In the Greek, it's used interchangeably to address healing and salvation. He doesn't just want to save you. He wants to completely heal you and set you free from all of these wounds that are hindering your current experience. The words used here in John chapter 3 and verse 17, For God did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And this is so important because when we're living in a thought life of condemnation, right? It's damaging to us. And some of us are actually prone to believe that those feelings of sh or those thoughts of shame and condemnation, they come from God. And the reason why we're tempted to believe that is because they have a moral feel to them. Something's telling you you did something wrong. And you think, oh man, that must be from Jesus. But Jesus is saying, hey, I didn't come here to condemn you. That's not what I came here for. But that the world through me might be saved. Not just, you know, not just saved in a legal sense from our transgressions, but healed. To heal you from your thoughts of condemnation. To heal you from an experience of condemnation and of shame. So if we're living in a headspace of condemnation and are believing that God has a posture that's being against us, John 3.17 shows us that that is not true. That's not what Jesus came here for, and it's not what God sent him for. He sent him to heal and to save us, to deliver us from the penalty, punishment, and presence of sin. And 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that Jesus became that sin, right? And received all that it, we deserve so that we don't have to identify ourselves with our failures. I think it's actually 2 Corinthians 5.21, not 17. That God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So shame is that I am something wrong, right? Guilt is that I've done something wrong. Shame is that I am something wrong. I'm nothing but an addict, right? This is one of my beefs with, though there are, are helpful principles within Alcoholics Anonymous and all of those, the ilk, the family of the recovery programs they have through that same system, the problem is you begin the conversation by saying, my name is D and I'm an alcoholic. I'm identifying myself with my sin, but God doesn't do that. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that Jesus identified himself with my sin so that I could identify myself with his righteousness. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be my sin so that I could become the righteousness of God in Christ. So he became that sin and received all that it deserves so we don't have to identify ourselves with our failures and we can be defined by his success. And this is part of that cleansing of the sanctuary that Jesus is longing to do right now. We see it again in Romans chapter 5 and verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, so much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved, sozo, by his life. 
And I love this because, and we talked about this last night, that it's not just the death of Jesus that we need. Jesus' death, we're told, deals with the idea of reconciliation, right? It clears our debt. The problem is, once I receive that beautiful, marvelous gift, I now need to live the rest of my life without sinning in word, thought, or deed. No problem, right? Because once I do that, I go right back into debt. So I don't just need someone to clear my debt. And this is why I fully believe, as a Seventh-day Adventist, in the two-phase atonement. The daily service, the yearly service. Yes, Jesus cleared my debt, but he also lived a life that I have not lived. And he's offering me access to that type of life. A life that can honor him, that is faithful to the law of God. In fact, Romans chapter 8 says, For what the law could not do, save us. This is verse 3. For what the law could not do, save us. And it was weak through the flesh, because our flesh can't keep the law. God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and flesh like ours. And on account of sin, Jesus condemns sin in the flesh, not you. He condemns sin in the flesh so that, we might, so that the righteous requirements of the law, verse 4, might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Literally, Jesus lived a law-abiding life in your flesh so that you could live a law-abiding, fly, uh, law-abiding life through his strength through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is the gift that's given to us through Jesus. So we don't just need the death of Jesus, we also need someone to live a life that we have not lived, and you get both. And what Jesus came to offer is is not just salvation, but healing. Complete and total healing. We see this in Micah chapter 7. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage, he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. Amen? God delights in mercy. He wants to to provide for you. He wants to forgive you and cleanse you in all of this. He doesn't have a posture saying, you know, if, if you prove your worth, maybe I'll make a move. God made the first move. And if you want to listen to the recording from last night, we talked about that. God made the first move, and we're responding to that. We're responding to his goodness. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. He'll separate us from our sins. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. Again, we're prone to take refuge in lies, and he's in the business of delivering truth. But will you let him? Because every time that God tries to speak truth into your thought life and you say, no, that's not true, I am a loser, I am a liar, I am a thief, I am an adulterer, I am not good enough, you're literally standing in his way of cleansing the sanctuary. You're fighting the work of cleansing that God is seeking to do in your life. And he doesn't want us to take refuge in lies anymore. So if you remember what we talked about last night, he not only has a posture of pardon towards us, but he's also fully desirous of separating us from that sin. He wants to cleanse it completely from the temple and leave no record of it. But if we don't let ourselves be loved and forgiven, we're basically refusing to let him cleanse the sanctuary. We're fighting his much-needed work on the Day of Atonement, and many times we're doing that while seeking to be a Christian. We're pleading with God to forgive us, but then we're telling him, no, 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 you can't get rid of that. And it's us that won't let it go. It's not God. And this is what I wanted to share this weekend, last night and again today. God is not the one who's saying, I don't know if I want to let go of this. It's us. God is in the business of cleansing. He's in the business of healing. But will you let him? So when we cherish our thoughts of self-hatred, shame, and condemnation, we're basically telling God, you can't take that out of here. It belongs here. That's what we're telling him. 
were literally standing in protest against this most precious work of cleansing the sanctuary. We're fighting his work of sanctification and cleansing, and we don't even see it. Now, the Apostle Paul understood this really well. Talking about this, the idea of self-hatred and those thoughts of shame and condemnation that can come to us. Imagine being Saul of Tarsus. He's, he has literally voted for the death of Christians, people who are serving God. He's, he's voted for that. He's imprisoned people and beaten people. And then he becomes a Christian. And do you think the devil gave him a diploma and said, congratulations, hope it works out for you? You better believe Paul was harassed all the time by his past. And we never talk about this. But this is why he says what we're going to see here later. Oh, it's right here in Romans 7, verse 17. The reason why I think he says this in Romans 7, ah, oh, man, I, I hate my own guts. Like the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I do want to do, I don't. And it's so frustrating. Maybe I said the same thing twice. You know what I mean. Anyway, in Romans 7, and he goes through this process and he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? But Paul understood the secret of the Christian experience. In Romans 7, verse 17, he says, but now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And this is the point. Paul understood the difference from what I do and struggle with and who I am as a person in the eyes of God. He understood the difference that what I'm doing does not define who I am. Those are two different things. God does not use shame. Jesus became what you have done so you could be identified by his success. And so imagine how much harassment Paul got for who he had been. Preaching the gospel, huh? Weren't you just killing people that did this? You're not even worthy to go up there and preach. And maybe this is why Paul said he continually preached with fear and trembling. It was unimpressive as a public speaker. Maybe he's being harassed while he's speaking because the devil knows he's doing a great work for Jesus. And maybe that's why you're being harassed. I'm fully convinced that the amount of oppression a person receives is in direct proportion to the potential that they bear. So what if all that harassment that you're receiving is not affirmation that you're a loser? What if it's the fact that Satan believes in you and he knows what you're capable of if you let God cleanse that sanctuary? He's no, he knows what you would be capable of if you believe the things about you that God believed. So he continually throws your past in your path and reminds you of who you've been, what you've done, and why God shouldn't forgive you. This is why this is so important for us. This is present truth, guys. The topic of mental health is absolutely present truth. In 1 John chapter 4, we're told, and we have known and believed the love that God has for us. This is the answer. To experientially know and to fully believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. And love has been perfected, perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. But many of our own people are horrified of the judgment. But that's John saying, no, 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 that shouldn't be your experience. You can have boldness in the judgment, not because of you, but because of Jesus. That we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. This is what, we, this is what gives us boldness and assurance in the judgment, knowing and believing that God loves us, right? That God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be our sin, so that we could become the righteousness of Christ. And so as he is, so are we in this world. We're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which gives us freedom from fear and the judgment. God is for me and not against me. He continues, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. And then it says that we love him because he first loved us. The only way in which anybody is going to fall in love with Jesus is by first encountering the reality that he's already in love with you. And that's before you got anything right. 
God showed his own love for us, Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says. God showed his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus didn't come to convince the Father to love us. It was because the Father already loved you before you got anything right that he sent Jesus. And this is the gospel, guys. He's seeking to cleanse our hearts and minds of fear as well. Listen to this. This is what God is doing in the investigative judgment right now in cleansing the sanctuary. God does not use or employ compulsory measures. Love is the agent which he uses to expel sin from the heart. It's not condemnation. It's not fear. It's not, oh, the judgment's coming. I better get my act together. God does not use compulsory measures. He understands that when we can come to a full embracing of the reality that I am fully known and fully loved by the God of the universe, this is what's going to lead to sin being expelled from the human soul. Love is the only agent that can do this. Not shame, not pressure, not coercion, not condemnation. And by it, by love, God changes pride into humility and enmity and unbelief into love and faith. Maybe you don't believe the things about you that God believes and you don't know how. God, I need you to speak that truth into my life right now. Speak love and life into my experience. And the same can go for the transgressions that have been committed against us. We talked earlier about the fact that, you know, when we're holding on to what we've done and who we've been, we're keeping God from his cleansing work. The same can be said for the transgressions that have been committed against us by other people. We need to ask God for his ability to forgive these individuals and to release these things so that God can cleanse them away and remove all record of them from the temple of our own hearts and minds. To be able to fully release what has been done against us into the hands of one who is fully safe. He has suffered just like you. This is what leads you to be able to come boldly into his presence because he knows what it's like to be treated poorly, abused, rejected, abandoned, lonely, and so forth. And he's willing to heal you fully. Not just to give you the ability to intellectually forgive them and move on with your life. He wants those wounds gone from the soul temple. He wants to fully heal us and set us free. And for some of us, that may require professional help. And that's totally fine. Amen? For me, it did. My trauma was bigger than me, and I had to come face to face with the fact that I needed help. And I found a Bible-believing, non-Freudian, amazing therapist who's been such a blessing to me, who's pointed me in the right direction. He's not changing my thoughts. He's not telling me what to do. He's giving me a guided tour of my story and helping me to process it and to work with God in giving those things. It's been so amazing and so helpful for me. For some of us, that's maybe what this looks like. And so if any of you are studying the topic of mental health, this is a big work that's needed right now, and hang in there. So we need to ask for God's ability to forgive these individuals and to release those things so that God can cleanse them away and remove all record of them from the temple of our own hearts and minds. And so part of the Laodicean message of Revelation chapter 3 is that you're not who you think you are at every aspect of your meaning, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, and otherwise. You think you're rich and have need of nothing, but what you don't realize is you're poor, miserable, blind, and naked. But then God offers a solution in himself. I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire, a faith that works by love, white raiment, the righteousness of Christ, and then the hard one is the third one, ISAV, spiritual discernment to recognize your true condition. We don't want to go there. Part of the reason why we're not experiencing the cleansing that God wants to give us is because we're not willing to go there. We're not willing to give the stuff up to let him have it. And we see this even in John chapter 5. Jesus comes up to this guy. I have so many more things I'd like to say, but I can't. So anyway, in John chapter 5, Jesus comes up to this guy at the pool of Bethesda. He's been an invalid for how many years? Anyone know? 38 years. 
He's been an invalid. And Jesus comes up and asks him a seemingly obvious question. What is that? It's on the board. <laughs> Open book test. Do you want to be made well? And that seems like a ridiculous question to ask someone who's paralyzed, doesn't it? Unless you knew the guy's story. Because when Jesus asks him, do you want to be made well, the guy's immediate response is all the reasons for why he can't be made well. Doesn't really matter. No one cares about me. No one will carry me to the water. I'm lonely. I'm rejected. And I did this to myself. I deserve it. This is what he's believing. And Jesus doesn't waste time in bantering with the guy. He tells him, rise, take up your mat, and walk. Now, I've talked about this before at Restoration. It was a million years ago. None of you were probably even here at that stage. Um, maybe you were. But I talked about this at Restoration three years ago, and there's turnover. You're at college. I'm just kidding. Anyway, um, some of you are professionals. You're still here. I know you. I know you. I know you. It just, yeah, I get it. Anyway, so Jesus, when he tells the guy to rise, take up his mat, and walk, it kind of makes you wonder, like, the rising and walking makes sense, but what's with the mat? What Jesus is basically telling the guy is to not forget where he came from. That mat is a reminder of 38 years of shame, rejection, abandonment, and loneliness, and so forth. And what Jesus is trying to tell him is, remember that I was good to you in that dark moment. And then that's not who you are anymore. That's who you used to be. But that's not who you are anymore, and you can walk. You're free, dude. Like, you can walk on your own two legs without assistance. You don't have to go back to that. But for some of us, we've been carrying that mat while trying to walk as Christians our whole lives. There's a difference from understanding the benefits of where you came from and where you are, but to keep identifying yourself by the story of your past is not healthy. You understand the difference? And so the question Jesus is really asking this guy is to exchange his identity. Do you really want things to change? Do you want to keep living in an experience of self-hatred, self-sabotage, and self-pity? Do you want that to change? And for some of us, no. I mean, yeah, I'd like to have this, this malady gone, but to change my mindset, right, to allow you to cleanse the sanctuary, I don't know if I'm ready for that. That kind of scares me because, again, we find refuge in lies. The whole head is sick. This is a place of comfort for us. Many of us are more comfortable in the damaging places than we are in a place of freedom and healing because we don't know what to expect from that. All we've known is brokenness. All we've known is betrayal and loneliness and discouragement, and it's scary to hope that things could change. And that's what Jesus is asking us this morning. Are you willing to let me get in there? And would you be willing to change this whole process and let me change this whole process? To live a different life, an abundant life, through my grace, my healing, my freedom. So our sins that we're committing are largely birthed out of the things that we're believing. So to assume that God is only going to try to get bad behavior out of your life during the Day of Atonement is really missing the whole point. And that's why he goes into these heart issues with a man in Roman, John chapter 5. Um, so when we've been surrounded by, or what we've been surrounded by and what's afflicted us becomes comfortable. And so to let go of that is hard and even scary for some of us. And so when Jesus asks us, do you want to be made well? Our answer, like the guy in John 5, is hesitancy, excuses. But he's asking us to trust him with our pain and our story and to let him heal us fully, to do the full work of sozo in our lives. And we close with this last idea, I think. Yeah. So in Romans chapter 4, I'm going to read from the IV, or quote from the IV. Speaking of Abraham, it says, Yet Abraham did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. 
And we say amen. But when you read the book of Genesis, his story doesn't look like that. And there's tension here, but there's a good answer. I'm not questioning Scripture. I'm not questioning God's goodness, mercy, justice, any of that. Listen to what I am saying. Why is there tension? How can Paul have the audacity to say what he says in Romans 4, 20 and 21, when the book of Genesis has a different story? Abraham trafficked his wife twice. He laughed in the face of God, and he slept with his handmaid and tried to do for himself what God had promised to do. Does that sound like only obeyed continually, always believed fully? It doesn't. So what do we do with this? In Romans chapter 4 and verse 17, Paul says, God calls the things that do not exist as though they did. Now, how can God do that? It's because Abraham fell upon the rock and was broken. He confessed and repented, which was the access to separation from his sin. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to separate us from our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And here's the good news, guys. When we bring our broken and troubled chapters of our story to Jesus, he literally rewrites our story. And that was the story of the success of Jesus over the top of my failures. This is what he wants to do in your life today, guys. He wants to rewrite that story. He wants to cleanse the sanctuary, but will you let him? Are you understanding? He wants to do that. So as it says in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, my little children, these things I write to you so that you don't sin, right? I'm not palliating sin, saying, yeah, keep sinning, doesn't matter. God will get rid of it. Like, of course, who would live like that? I would never say such a thing. Beloved, I wish you didn't sin, but here's the good news. If you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he's doing a work right now on your behalf. He himself was the propitiation, the covering for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So here's my appeal to us this morning. Are you willing to let him do what he's seeking to do right now? When he's cleansing the sanctuary up above, he's also seeking to cleanse the sanctuary right here in our hearts and in our minds. And will we let him go there? Will we let God do for us what he's longing to do? Or are we going to stand in the way and say, no, 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 that belongs here. You can't take that. That's not the abundant life, guys. You can't change your thoughts. You can't free yourself from these negative thought patterns. You can't heal yourself from abuse and abandonment and loneliness. But you do have a Savior who's in the business of sozo, of saving and healing, and he delights to cleanse. He delights in mercy, but will you let him go there? I'm fully convinced that the Laodicean message has a large mental health component. This is present truth, guys. We're finding refuge in lies, we're finding these, these horrible, challenging circumstances in our own hearts and minds that are not as God would intend. Refuge and lies, and the whole head is sick. Will you let him in today? Will you let him be the great physician and begin this work? I don't know what that's going to look like for you. I don't know what your next step is, but he does. If you're just willing to go there, he can get you there. Amen? Guaranteed. But are you willing to look in the mirror and let him do that work that he longs to do? Let's pray. God in heaven, you know our hearts, you know our stories better than we do, and you know what our stories are doing to us when we don't release them to you. And so I pray, oh God, that you would forgive our sins, that you would cover them with the blood of Jesus. I pray that you would send the Holy Spirit to bring comfort, the spirit of truth to minister to the lies in our hearts and our minds, and that you would do for us what we so desperately need. You don't palliate sin, but you are faithful to cleanse and forgive from sin and to separate us from it. And Lord, you want to rewrite many stories in this room right now. 
And we've been hesitant. We're scared of a different chapter. We at least know what to expect in the pain. God, would you give us courage to turn the page, to hand you the pen, and allow you to write a new story today. This is our plea, O oh God, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.